What you know about rolling down in the deep end? Now we're rolling. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes, and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. Speaking of lesser known legacies, uh, have you been watching the UFO news recently? I have been watching UFO news for over a decade at this point. Yes, I mean, in fairness, we, we have both been watching UFO news for quite a while. Yeah, well, is one of your ex-boyfriends like a featured star in a movie about UFOs? No, that is true. None of my ex-boyfriends have ever been featured uh, in movies about UFOs. One of mine has. Yes. Uh, in fact, my favorite ex-boyfriend, <laughs> if I had to rank them. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Adam, if you're listening, you made the, the top three. You made the cut. Congratulations. Of all three of the boyfriends I've ever had. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we... You and I know this, but we have been following this closely. Mm-hmm. 20, 2016, things really picked up. Uh, but they, this next 30-day period, this next month, we're talking June 2021, there's finally going to be this government report. Mm-hmm. And uh, it seems like a lot, of the, uh, a lot of rumors will be confirmed, put it that way. So here's what I'll say. I have mixed feelings about this because it's also Pride Month, and it feels like... As a queer woman, I'm going to have to split my time between caring about queer things and caring about UFO things. Let me help you out then. Let me help you out. (laughs) And I don't want to have to pick. I want a month for each of those. A full month. No, 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 no. I think you're going about this all wrong. What could be gayer (laughs) than finding out totally new ways to have sex with things people never imagined in ways that Christians would just absolutely hate. So I feel like you fundamentally misunderstand what gay means <laughs> in this context. Um, it sounds uh, concerning slash interesting. <laughs> All I'm saying is, like, could they push it to July? For uh, You know, we've been trapped in, in our house since January 2020. This is the first, you know, opportunity for a lot of vaccinated queer people to... Uh, Enjoy Pride. And so can we have UFO month be July? The fuck are we celebrating in July? America? Fuck that. Look, I'm telling you, I still think there is like some happy way to combine these in a way that everybody, everybody wins. No, I don't want it. Let's pick a different month. I'm putting, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I would like a different month for UFO celebration. I swear to God, if the first thing that happens... Mm -hmm. Is we find out UFOs are real, and oh, then you start. Uh, you a... mean they Sorry. are real? Sorry, we get the government admits UFOs are real. That aliens, they say UFO. They no. just can't like figure out what okay. it is. Yes, the government's going to say UFOs are real. Okay, We're, we know aliens are real. Yeah, what, yeah. What, if the first thing that happens is because of this, mm-hmm. you start a war with gay aliens. No. Then no. Yes, then I'm going to be so mad. Because they're I, gonna be I, like, I won't be starting a war. All I'm going to say is like, hey, could you come back in 30 days? <laughs> no, we're here for fucking Pride Month. That's why we <laughs> showed up. Okay. So, I mean, I guess there is room in the alphabet mafia to add one extra letter. 
like LGBTQNIA plus UFO? I like it. Okay. Let's do it. Let's brand that. <laughs> trademark. Dot com. Trademark. Dot com. <laughs> um, all right. Well, that's a way to start this week's episode. Is it now? It's a, way to, it's a way to start any week's episode. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, it's totally unrelated to anything that has to do with this week's hero. But So there's no like neat segue. Would you like for me to just get into it? Or we want to talk more about acronyms or initialisms? Let's get into it. Okay. Well, that's what we're here for. Specifically, here for this week's hero, Shel Silverstein. What do you know about him? Shel Silverstein is a beloved poet known to many millennials, mm-hmm. especially us elder millennials. Uh, first of all, it's geriatric. It's geriatric millennials. Yes. Maybe still around for the Gen Zers, wrote mm-hmm. many beloved children's uh, poems. Mm-hmm. Uh, books famously where the sidewalk ends and a light in the attic, I think. Yes. They are usually uh, pretty absurd and at least a little dark or strange mm-hmm. um, about the man himself though no almost nothing all right well let's take it back to the beginning born september 25th 1930 this is the only other zodiac sign you know september 25th mm-hmm. two days before Lil wayne's birthday oh libra he is a libra he is in fact a september libra mm. of which there are only like Eight or nine days worth. The clearly superior Libras, if yeah. I do say so myself. Yeah. I mean, what can I say? You tell me Lil Wayne, I know he's a Libra. Obviously. I mean, just look at him, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> he does have very Libra energy, and uh, I'm here for it. Fair enough. But you know what that means. It's time for Audrey's Astrology Corner. As a Libra born on September 25th, they're well known for their diplomacy sociability, and imagination. They thrive in a group setting, and they greatly enjoy the company of others. In times when group harmony is threatened, they often jump in, doing whatever is necessary to restore balance. Their friends appreciate their gift for compromise almost as much as they appreciate their their active imagination and clever ideas. Okay, I heard active imagination and imagination a couple times. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's see if the rest of it checks out. Okay. Born. Logan Square area of Chicago. Assume that's important to people who know Chicago. Shout out Chi-Town. I spent two summers working in Chicago. Couldn't tell you where Logan Square is. I spent a weekend there about 15 years ago. (laughs) Born to working class parents. Has a sister named Peggy. Not a lot of information about his younger years. But he seems to have had like a relatively normal or uneventful childhood. I'll say that. Okay. When when the biographies are uh, sparse on their childhood, I just imagine, you know, they have sort of the regular childhood where their parents yell at them for, like, having not clean rooms, but no family tragedy occurs. Yeah, what a depth of experience, you know, just lies dormant in the childhoods of so many people that ends up being just totally irrelevant Mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. in the ways that its dysfunction seeps out into their adult lives. Just like, man, when you're a kid, everything seems so important, and you're just like, eh, nothing matters. 
that's kind of like 90% of our podcast. Like if if someone has a fucked up childhood, they end up on our podcast. Yeah. yeah okay. It is rare. We are in this is a rare moment where he has a seemingly like uh, uneventful, boring, child, normal childhood. But now. Yes. Yes. Enters his preteen years. He starts to draw. He would later say the reason that he started to draw was because he was ugly or he thought of himself as ugly. And so did the girls. Okay. And he couldn't play sports. Play to your strengths then. Right. So he couldn't get attention from girls. Mm -hmm. He wasn't popular. Couldn't catch a ball. And so he spent a lot of time alone teaching himself to draw. He said, you know, later in an interview that his style, which I think you and I can agree is very specific. Yeah. It's very like line drawings Mm -hmm. in ink Mm -hmm. and like a little uh, squiggly. Squiggly, almost like witchy. Mm, Okay. Like you see it and you're kind of like, ooh, that's unstable. Like a little dark uh, cartoon. Right. Even his most like generous, like cutesy, quirky pieces you look at and you you think like there's something behind those eyes. Yeah. He did the the giving tree, right? He did the giving tree. Okay. Yeah. So even then, like that thing looks haunted the whole time. Just let's be very clear. Right. So he said like he had no one that he was copying. There was no one, you know, there's no specific or identifiable style that he was trying to to copy because, quote, he didn't have anyone to copy or be impressed by. I mean, yeah, it's a little bit of an ego there. Yeah. Okay, buddy. You can't even get 13-year-old girls to notice you. Who are you trying to be impressed by? Yeah. Goes to college at the University of Illinois, expelled for bad grades. That's what the college says. Like right away? Uh, Within like two years. Okay. He says, quote, I didn't get laid much, and I didn't learn much. Those are the two worst things that can happen to a guy. Yeah, okay. So college not working out for him. Leaves, whether or not uh, on his own volition. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Depending on the amount that he's getting laid or learning. Mm Mm-hmm. Checks out, heads to art school. Probably a better fit, to be honest. Okay, okay. He's there for just a few months before he gets drafted into the Korean War in the early 50s. So you might be thinking, okay, this guy makes dark cartoons. He's probably seen some shit. Maybe he was on the front lines. The answer is probably not. Because what he did do in the army was work as a cartoonist for the military magazine called The Stars and Stripes. He got drafted to be a cartoonist? Mm -hmm. And he said it was actually very difficult to oh. turn out cartoons day after day. Oh, oh yes. Oh yes. I can imagine how how hard it must be. The daily deadline of having some satire while your peers are being massacred all around you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I I guess it takes a whole bunch of different skills, but I did not imagine that uh yeah, edit cartoons would be a thing you would be on serving in the army for during the Korean War. Right. But, I mean, he's not our first, right? So there's, like, Dr. Seuss who did the same thing. Oh, Walt Disney, right? right? Yeah, I guess he was, like, a little bit more established, though. I guess, like, yeah. Totally, As totally. a dr- drafted person, that's surprising. Right. Drafted from art school. He comes in yeah, and they're like, true. what can you offer us? And he's like, uh, do you need some cartoons for your military paper? I would prefer that to being shot. Or, or they're, like, you know, giving guns to everybody. They're giving guns. <laughs> and he walks up. They're like, wait. Where are you coming from? He's like, art school? They're like, head over there. Just, no. Just go over there. 
Either way, the war ends. Shell returns home. And remember, home is Chicago. Returns to Chicago, gets a series of sort of like odd jobs to make ends meet, submitting cartoons to various publications. And his cartoons catch the eye of a very specific up-and-coming publication. Any guesses? It's the 50s Chicago. Highlights for kids. Highlights for kids. So close, my man. Playboy. Oh, okay. Yeah, very close. Very close. Submit some cartoons to Playboy. It's a brand new magazine. There's very short staffed. So if they don't get back to him for months and months and months, and he thinks, oh, they're going to pass on it. But like right at the end where he's like losing hope, he's submitting to all these other places. Hugh Hefner himself reaches out and says, hey, meet me. I'd like to talk to you about your cartoons. Wait, Hugh Hefner is like reaching out to this cartoonist guy? Yes. They meet in person. Hugh Hefner is like, I loved your cartoons, writes him a check on the spot, hands it to him and says, you now work for Playboy. Like a check for $10? A check for a significant amount, enough that Shel Silverstein cashes at the bank, takes it home as cash, throws it on his kitchen table and says to his parents, I'm moving out. I'm a professional cartoonist now. <laughs> oh, oh, he got that fuck you money from he's Hefner. Got, <laughs> he's got that early 50s Playboy fuck you money. Wow, can you imagine having having like the moment of like pride and culmination where you like like you're going to like have your cool moment that you've like been playing over and over in your head and it involves you tossing like like $25 just on the table being like I'm a professional cartoonist now <laughs> like what is the reaction you expect from that well it worked out for him um but if people want to know what like early Playboy's fuck you money gets you, they're welcome to go listen to episode 17, which is actually about Hugh Hefner. Yeah, yeah. And sort of his his Did, beginnings in this space. Yes, and it didn't start off as a uh, gigantic financial behemoth or anything. It did not. It did not. But this, you know, sort of sets Silverstein up. Hefner hires him first just as a cartoonist, sort of in the, like, New Yorker style. We're going to have an article here and there and – or, like, a – like a cartoon like and a, a interspersed, quip. yeah, right. among the articles. But the two of them become fast friends, and there are numerous articles from the time, and like even his biography talks about the fact that Shel Silverstein, and I want to pause to emphasize this, was Hugh Hefner's sidekick. What? From the late fifties until the seventies, the two of them. We're best friends. Wait, it was like his right-hand man? Right-hand man. In fact, he gets hired as Playboy's first foreign correspondent cartoonist. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a job title I swear I have never heard before. <laughs> I don't know if it exists anywhere else, but that was his title. I mean, I will say this. I, I work at the moment... At a media company. You do. And I have never heard the term foreign correspondent cartoonist. I mean, that's the business card, my man. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. So um, he's close enough with Hef where he is just making up jobs for him. Traveling around the world, um, at first just doing cartoons, but eventually semi-journalist pieces, going to places like 
nudist colonies in writing about it. That sort of stuff. Writing about it or drawing cartoons about it? Because if you're like, I'm going to go to the nudist colony and draw cartoons about this. We're going to get to that. Okay, okay. But this is sort of the moment, this mid-50s moment in Shel Silverstein's life that you and I, children of the 90s, where the sidewalk ends, a light in the attic, falling up. We don't know this about Shel Silverstein. No, nobody ever mentioned Playboy is at any part of this in school. <laughs> nobody was ever like, okay, kids. So uh, let's talk about his early work, right? Right. Literally, his first professional job the was thing working that, for Playboy. The thing that gave him mm-hmm. the money to move out of the parents' house. And it is well documented that the Shel Silverstein we knew was actually behind the scenes a raunchy, sex-crazed artist who lived at the Playboy Mansion and partook in all things Playboy-related. Wait, so he lived at the mansion? He was so deep in the inner circle that when the Playboy Mansion was built in 1959... He was a permanent resident. A permanent resident? Yeah. He also had a houseboat at some point <laughs> where he like traveled back and forth. Sure. But he yeah. was traveling the world foreign correspondent. When he returns, the place he lives is the Playboy Mansion. Okay. So this is wild. So if you could re- remind people who have not yet listened to our Hugh Hefner episode, mm-hmm. what was the Playboy Mansion like at this time? At this time, it was glamorous. It was expansive. It was uh, contemporary, cutting edge. It was also indulgent. It was all the things that you would imagine Great Gatsby-esque of the early 1960s. Yes. So if you take F. Scott Fitzgerald and you fling him 40 years into the future, all the things that Great Gatsby could imagine, that is what the Playboy Mansion in the 60s was like. Like I said, Shel Silverstein was deep in Playboy culture. One biographer estimates that he slept with about a thousand women during his years in this like Playboy inner circle. How many? How many years is that? A decade or so. Okay. Okay. Got it. Sure. So like a hundred a year, or so. And you know how this biographer knows it. I don't know. It is. It is repeated multiple places. We're talking ballpark figures. Okay. Got it. And what I want to say at this moment is, like, this is not to say that he shouldn't have been doing that. Consenting adults. I am not going to judge him. I would say, though, it's a little bit like Bob Saget, full house. (laughs) Yes. On the the front end. Oh, I'm Danny Tanner, and I keep a clean house with three daughters. And behind the scenes, I'm like the raunchiest stand-up comedian you know. Not even, like, behind the scenes. Just, like, slightly before his current cultural role, right? Like, before his fame as a child. Like, just the fact that he is out there living the uh, the bachelor life to the fullest. Totally. Well within his rights. The part where it gets, like, not cool for me is that there are a number of women that he is sleeping with who would later go on to say that he was incredibly demeaning and misogynistic toward them. So he was upfront saying, like, I don't want a relationship. This is all casual. Fine. Whatever. But if any woman were to show any sort of affection to him, he would say things like, "Uh, let me add you to my list of things to do right below all of the other work that I like doing more. 
Oh, yeah, just like nasty. Cruel. Yeah. There's like a distinction in my mind between consenting adults who have any number of sexual partners that they want to have. Who cares? Not our place to judge. And then there's also this um, exploitation of power because you are in the Playboy inner circle that you sort of take advantage of these women who are around you and then like throw them to the curb the moment that they're like, hey, I like kind of actually like you. Yeah. Yes. So feels gross. Clearly, Shel Silverstein is not what we think of when we think of like children's author. And he's not this sort of Charles Schultz pretending to be living up or like living this buttoned up all-American dad, good guy sort of facade. Side note, if folks want to listen to the Charles Schultz episode, it's episode 44. Just want to plug that for a second. But from 1957 to through the 1970s, Shell is working for Playboy. He's also writing books behind the scenes. And artistically, he is doing what Dr. Seuss, another episode, eight, nine, something up there. Yeah, I don't remember. An episode full of callbacks. He is doing essentially what Dr. Seuss really wishes he could have done, which was draw sexy cartoons that people actually wanted to look at and take seriously. That's right. Yes. So for those of you who missed that, Dr. Seuss's goal, aspiration in life. His first start. He really wanted to write sexy cartoons. Erotica. Yeah. Just imagine the reaction you would have if you saw erotica drawn with Dr. Seuss characters Mm -hmm. because whatever reaction you're imagining is exactly the reaction that everybody else had when they saw it. Yes, because it's not different than, oh, the places you'll go. No, it's really (laughs) not. He looks exactly the same. Yes. (laughs) But what I want to do right now is take a moment to show you some of these sexy cartoons that Shel Silverstein was creating for Playboy. I would love to have you describe it And I would love to hear your reaction to it. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to hand this to you right now. You ready? Okay. Yeah, just turn it around for me. Let me see. Okay, yes. So it it is a uh, Shel Silverstein-style line drawing of a bathtub. It is. Like, if you saw it, you would be like, oh, that is absolutely Shel Silverstein. No one else could have created this. Yes. Yes. Uh, And so it is a bathtub, and inside the bathtub is just... An orgy of limbs, just like it, arms and you legs. You can't even tell how many. I tried to count. You yeah, can't there, even count. There's at least uh, 10 or 11 legs sticking out. Right. Uh, and there's not like whole bodies visible. It's like uh, an impossible number of legs and arms. One woman's head and then one man's head on the other side, like sitting, looking across to her saying, I guess this destroys the myth about hippies never bathing. Yes. Um yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's clever, I ish. I mean, like, if you're making fun of hippies, I guess that's funny. Yeah. Right. So this is like early 60s playboy, Shel Silverstein at his peak creating erotic content for playboy. Yeah. All these all these limbs are obviously naked because uh, it's not very erotic, though. Let's be clear. Like, it doesn't like scream erotic. So let me tell you something. Uh-huh. Shel Silverstein's cartoons... And his later, what they called travelogue, were the second most popular feature of the Playboy magazines during his entire tenure. Wait. The first being centerfolds. 
Wait, wait, so in the list of things that yes. Playboy had in this time. Yes, number, not the investigative journalism, not the hard-hitting interviews. Number one is centerfolds, like the yes. fold-out extra-large pictures. Of naked women. Of naked women. Uh-huh. And number two on everyone's most popular list is his cartoons. Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> not like the other pictures of naked women? Nope, the don't car- even come close. The cartoons. That's the one. And he's a Renaissance man. He wasn't just drawing cartoons. He was writing also. Okay. You know, okay. we think of him as a poet and a cartoonist. And he was a poet and a cartoonist then. And the stuff that he wrote for Playboy, I'm going to be honest, was really dark. I'm going to read you one of these poems. Okay, this is poems, not prose. This is, this is poetry. This is a poem that appeared in Playboy, written by Shel Silverstein in 1966. Okay. The title... Never bite a married woman on the thigh. Okay. Never bite a married woman on the thigh, because she just can't rub it off no matter how she'll try. And when she gets home at night, her man will ask her why. Then she'll say it's just a birthmark or some silly lie, but he'll get suspicious, and then he will start to pry. And then she'll get hysterical, and she will start to cry. And he'll say, I don't blame you, but tell me who's the guy. She'll admit to everything, and he will say bye-bye. And he'll buy an airline ticket, and he'll fly across the sky. And then he'll come and find you, and he'll punch you in the eye. Then he'll rent a cheap hotel, and he'll hang himself with his tie. And when she gets the news, she'll take an overdose of sleeping tablets, and she's going to lie on the couch and die. So never, 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 never bite a married woman on the thigh. The... Okay, the weirdest part about this is that it is clearly, like, Shel Silverstein poetry. So specific. <laughs> from, like, fourth grade for me. Uh, but <laughs> about not biting your lovers so that their uh, spouses don't kill themselves. Right. Or, and she'll kill herself, too. Yeah, and then, then they kill themselves, too. Die, yeah. die by suicide. And, and just, like, yes, the, the uh, yeah, it's dark and it's just so ridiculous. We haven't even begun to get into the ridiculous stuff that he wrote for Playboy, but let me just tell you what's happening simultaneous to this before we get into more ridiculousness. Sure. So he's got these orgy bathtub drawings. Yes. He's got these poems. Mm -hmm. He's number two on the list of most popular things. He's chilling with half. He's sleeping with women. And finally, in 1960 he publishes his very first book of non-Playboy-related cartoons. This book is called, Now Here's My Plan, A Book of Utilities. And the cover art for this book has actually been used for psychological testing. Wait, what? I'm going to describe it to you and tell you why. Shel Silverstein thought this was the most ridiculous thing to ever happen to his work. But the cover of this book is two men chained in a prison cell their arms and legs bound sort of like you know like they're in an x their arms above their head their legs legs are bound at the floor okay and they're just like both bound on the wall next to each other yep and they're they have tattered clothing they're unshaving or they're unshaven which shows that they've been there for a while so the caption of the cartoon is one man saying to the other quote now here's my plan (laughs) yes because they are obviously just both tied up beyond any hope. Beyond any hope. And that is what psychologists are using it for. 
So, you know, psychiatry, psychology in the early 60s is burgeoning. It's a whole market. It's a new industry. They're basically using it as this inkblot test where they show this cover to people who are institutionalized or otherwise in their offices seeking psychological help. And they say, like, what does this cover and this line mean to you? And essentially, all they're looking for is for their patients to say, oh, that there's like a little bit of hope there. They have a plan despite the fact that they've been like tied up in here forever. In this ridiculous situation. Yes. Right. Shel Silverstein is like, yo, it's not that deep. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is literally a satire on hope. Yeah. Like, the whole book is called uh, A Book of Utilities, which implies that there's no hope. Yes, that's the whole point. It's the- not deeper than that. I'm, I'm not that deep. I'm not that smart, friends. And the psychologist is like, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. You don't get it. People, like, need this in their life. Okay. The year after that first book comes out, it's 1961. One of his most popular Playboy features gets commissioned to be expanded into a real book. And this real book is called Uncle Shelby's ABZ book. ABZ? Yes. Do you know anything about this book? Uh, I do not. Okay, so I had a few subtitles at the time. One is Uncle Shelby's ABZ, a primer for adults only. Okay. The other is Uncle Shelby's ABZ, a primer for tender young minds. <laughs> Wait, this is the same book? Yes. Wait, the same book was subtitled both for adults yes. only and for yes. tender young minds? Yes. And it does exactly what you would expect it to do. So it goes through each letter of the alphabet and it has like a little quip for each letter, right? Like, okay. hey, it's for Apple, blah, blah, blah. Except it's not that at all. Okay. It's like cartoons too, I'm assuming. Yes. I have three letters that I'm going to share with you. I'm not sure I can make it through these letters without breaking into laughter and sobbing. So, <laughs> Challenge accepted. I practice this. I'm going to do my best. Okay. Let me give you a glimpse. Here's the calmest one of them all. <laughs> Are you up for this? Can you handle it? I can't. I can't, but I'm going to get together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can do this. You can do it. I can't. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Come on. It's so fucking funny. <laughs> this is funny when I read it by myself. It's so much harder to read it to you. <laughs> Okay, go on. Ooh, I can't do it. How about, how about you just zoom in on the screen and I'm you trying. show it to me and okay. I'll read it. Okay. okay. Okay, yeah, it actually might be funnier if you read it okay. and be surprised by it. Okay, okay. Okay, hold on. L is for lollipop. Okay, here, I'm reading it. I got it. L is for lollipop. Lollipops are good to eat just before supper. L is also for lie. What? Do you want a nice red lollipop? Go pour all the... Lie into the toilet. Lie, L Y E, like lie, the chemical. Got it. Yeah, into the toilet. Now tell mommy you have eaten a lie. That is a fib or a little white lie. Mommy will take you to the doctor in a taxi cab. After the doctor pumps out your stomach, he will give you a nice red lollipop. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, effective advice, uh, <laughs> terrible advice for kids. Yes. <laughs> T 
terrible advice. Okay, so that is L. All right, I think I can get to Q. Okay, you can get. It's a bit more sinister. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Q is for quarantine. Isn't that a big word? Do you know what this word means? It means come in, kids, free ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) And this one's my favorite. And finally, S is for spit. The champion spitter of the United States of America is Ronald Bogash, age 11, of 224 Morton Street, Cleveland, Ohio. Ronald spit all the way from the kitchen to the living room, 23 feet, 6 and 3 quarters inches. Who will be the new champion? S is also for Stanley. Stanley is a crazy murderer who likes to murder little boys and girls early Sunday morning. (laughs) Are you afraid of Stanley? You are. Well, then quick, jump out of bed and go sleep with mommy and daddy. (laughs) There. Isn't that Betty? Better? Mommy and daddy love to have you sleep with them. (laughs) Got it. Oh, man. Okay. His his style is uh, hopefully to be gifted by the fun aunts and uncles to the nieces and nephews (laughs) without letting their parents know. Got it. Right. So this book is actually a pretty big hit among adults, but no one really knows whether or not to take seriously Shell's insistence that it is also a children's (laughs) book. (laughs) Oh, he was insistent it was a children's book. For tender young minds. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay. Got it. So it's very dark and full of sexual innuendos like Sunday morning, go hop in your parents' bed. Yes, exactly. Early 60s, this book is published. His friends are like, hey, I know that was a joke, but you'd probably be actually pretty good at writing children's books. And Shell was like, no, see, here's the deal. Uh, I'm a grown-ass man, and I finally get to have sex with a lot of people. I'm traveling the world, going to nudist beaches. Uh, I don't even like children, so definitely not going to write a children's book. Hell no. His editor is like, well, hear me out. There's not a lot of children's books. Would you like to make a shit ton of money? And Joe was like, you know what? I would. I do like... I, do. I would like to make a lot of money. I like a shit ton of money more than I dislike children. Right, right. <laughs> and so, 1964, okay. he publishes The Giving Tree. Wait, that was the first children's book? That was. That one's not funny at all. It's not funny at all, but he has a gift for, uh, I don't know, bumming people out in a way that makes them nostalgic. Sure, I guess. And this book is actually a lot more controversial than most of us sort of consider it to be. Yeah, it's a terrible, terrible, like, moral to the story. It is. People think of it as this, like, very romantic book that is like, oh, we give of ourselves and, you know, finally we have this relationship. Silverstein himself said it's a book about a relationship in which one side gives and the other takes and it leaves both parties without ever any self-actualization. Yeah, yeah. Full codependence. There are some feminist authors who consider it to be this ultimate sort of piece in exposing the fact that there's this expectation that women, the tree, are expected to be selfless and men, the boy, is granted the opportunity to be selfish. And then there are, it is, this is a very popular book in certain Christian circles. Did you know this? No, I was not aware. I did not either. But in certain evangelical Christian circles, it takes on that theme of women giving, men taking, and it encourages this like subservience to give, give, give. Like that way at the end, you both end up together. Wait, so so the book that he wrote explicitly about like exploitation and, and feminists were like, this shows the exploitation mm-hmm. 
by men of women, mm-hmm. there's a Christian community that's like, this is perfect. Yes, you got it exactly yes, right. They're like, oh, the theme of self-sacrifice is exactly what Christians need to do, especially along gender lines. Wow. And it's not like it's about like, oh, the sacrifice of Jesus. It's like this is what the family dynamic should look like. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's rough. It is rough. So if you are any of the number of left-leaning, rarely bathed women I know who have the giving tree tattooed on your body, look, sorry about your luck. Hey. Interpret it however you want. There you go. Bring your own story. Regardless, puts him on the bestseller list almost immediately. He writes three more children's book books that year and then heads out to do some investigative like cartoon journaling at whatever nudist camp he's been sent to that year. A lot of nudist camps. A lot of them. The other thing he's doing at this time, if you can believe it, is writing a ton of country music. Wait, what? Some of this he records himself. In fact, he has like nine albums to his name. Shel Silverstein has nine country albums? Nine country albums. How have we never heard this before? Oh, well, they're very bad country albums. Oh, really? Yes. So he writes some for other performers, but none of his are very popular because, true to his style, the songs that he writes for himself are very raunchy. So he writes songs about masturbation, venereal disease, songs explicitly about ejaculation, smoking pot, again, nude beaches. Wait, what are some of these song titles? I Love My Right Hand. <laughs> okay. And okay. So they're not like subtle allegories. Getting my rocks off. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Songs like that. Got it. I and came on your face. He, I mean, that could be one. Okay. Got one it. One is called like, um, like the smoking blues or something, and uh-huh. it's just about being baked out of his mind. Got it. Got it. He fully understands why no one buys his albums. He was like, no one is interested in this from Shel Silverstein, children's author. But I like the way that I sound, and I like making music. Yeah, it's like Lil Wayne playing guitar. Okay. <laughs> Why did you have to take it there? We He's had a, a Libra. Pos- He's a Libra. We had a positive <laughs> Lil Wayne reference at the beginning, and now you're going to bring up the rock era? I swear to God, if you bring up the masked singer, I will. <laughs> that, that you will did be- it for me. You oh. did it for me. Okay. I don't, so just for the record, I whoever is out there, if you have not seen the most recent season of The Masked Singer... I did not see it either, but it was... It, the, <laughs> I have never seen a single the episode in the mask. came on right after something like very big. Like it might have been after the Super Bowl. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, because the Chiefs were in the Super Bowl, right? Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes. Chiefs were in the Super Bowl and they lost. Uh-huh. And then, so at the end, the very next thing that came up was the mask Singer, so everybody would keep watching. And they were like... Who is this artist? Yeah, so so, like, so the whole the whole premise, if you don't know, is that there's like all of these people that are in like mascot outfits, like a rabbit and a duck and an eagle and like a leprechaun yes, or whatever. Yes. And they're all celebrities in these mascot outfits, and they come out and sing songs. Right. And whoever and but you and don't they get know, clues. The 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 people who are trying to guess get like kind of clues. Yeah. The judges are trying to figure it out. Anyway. Right. So this this mascot is a rabbit. This rabbit comes out right, and it. Right. Start singing, and it is immediately, obviously, Little Wayne. Like, like they literally could have just done a lighter sound, like, <laughs> and everybody would be like, "Oh, that's Little Wayne." They didn't have to because all it was was like a rabbit that sounded like a gremlin. Yeah, he's like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> he's like doing his little voice, uh, and and everybody has to pretend like they don't know immediately <laughs> and obviously that it's Little Wayne. I'll tell you who didn't fucking pretend. Twitter. 
Twitter was <laughs> yes, like it was so obvious immediately. Is, is that Lil Wayne on the Magic Singer? Within yes. like seconds of him opening his mouth. I also feel like this is a very important time for people to know that we are not making fun of Lil Wayne. That I would leave you for Lil Wayne tomorrow. <laughs> that is true. That is very yesterday, true. I would have done it yesterday. <laughs> Lil Wayne is my absolute favorite. I have there's so much endearing about him except when he got that pardon from Trump by endorsing him. That was a very low moment. I cried. I cried. Not his not his brightest moment. Okay. Not, nor, neither was the mass singer. Anyway, all this to say We're back to Shel Silverstein. Shel Silverstein mm-hmm. makes these albums. Makes these albums and they are they are analogous <laughs> to the Lil Wayne rock years playing guitar. Right. I've seen him play guitar live in concert, and Lil Wayne played one guitar string, essentially. Yeah. Nobody needs to see. If, if it makes you happy, go for it, Wheezy. But 100%. You have so many other strengths. Do it for yourself. Nobody else is really interested. Lean into the into your strengths. Schultz over seen same, same thing. M- loves making music. Everyone hates it. He doesn't care. The thing is, he's not a bad songwriter when he tries. He is actually in the Country Music Hall of Fame. No fucking way. For a number of songs that he wrote. What? The least of which is not A Boy Named Sue for Johnny Cash. Wait, he wrote he wrote A Boy Named Sue for Johnny Cash? He did. And if folks want to know more about that, it's episode 53. What the fuck? He wrote three chart toppers for Loretta Lynn. No way. A number for Waylon Jennings. He, these are not, this is like, this is like country music royalty he's writing for. Royalty. He is in the country music hall of fame. He is a legitimately good songwriter when he tries to be. When he's not just writing about semen, basically. He is also a terrible country music songwriter <laughs> because after A Boy Named Sue, he wrote a really fucked up sequel to A Boy Named Sue. And literally no one ever was willing to record it. Wait, what's it called? What's it called? I don't remember. It's like a father of Sue or something like that. Okay. They ignore Let me. me give you the gist of it. Okay. The father of this boy named Sue makes his child his slave. What? And then implies that the two are in a forced, incestuous sexual relationship. What the fuck? In which the father has manipulated the child, into sexual assault. So wait, so, and you're saying this wasn't super popular? Yeah, it's a non-starter for literally every single music producer who ever heard it, and there are no recordings of it. I mean, obviously. What the hell? Real hit and miss. Quite the swing of the pendulum. By 1970, he's well-established in his career. He is also a fixture in the party scenes both at the Playboy Mansion and in Nashville, where apparently he's very popular at this point. Pretty surprising. Traveling all over, living in Chicago, living on a houseboat in California, in and out of the Playboy Mansion. And it's in 1970 when he meets a woman named Susan Hastings. The two of them end up having a daughter together. Her name is Shoshana. Not a lot of information about this, but it seems like Susan and Shell tried to make a marriage work. But given that Shell was traveling the world, doing literally whatever the fuck he wanted, this marriage was short-lived. Again, before, during, and after his marriage, he is 
traveling all over trying to get his young wife and his newborn to live on this houseboat in this party city. They say, no, no, no. They're not going for it. He gives an interview at the time. He's freshly divorced. And he says, quote, I'm free to leave. Go wherever I please. Do whatever I want. I believe everyone should live like that. Don't be dependent on anyone else. Man, woman, child or dog. I want to go everywhere. Look at and listen to everything. You can go crazy with some sort of that wonderful stuff there is in life. Does not sound like a healthy attachment. Yeah, it's not super stable for a, a newborn. Yeah. I'll yeah, tell you yeah, that. Yeah. Divorces, Susan. Shoshana goes to live with her mother. Shell visits sporadically. 1975, the day before Shoshana's fifth birthday, her mom dies of cancer. Oh, yikes. Real tough blow. You would imagine that Shell, being super successful, wealthy, famous, connected, he would think to himself, now is the time. I have made it. I've done what I want to do. I'm 45. I am going to settle down, reevaluate my life, and like do right by my child. I mean, you would sure hope so. But I have a feeling, based on the way you phrase it. Mm-mm. He said, fuck them kids. <laughs> yes, he did. Damn it. And he sent Shoshana to live with her aunt and uncle. Apparently, during this time, his his visits with her became even more sporadic and unpredictable. Uh, he, at one point, uh, essentially made her have a meltdown because he convinced her the tooth fairy wasn't real. She's like six, and she's like, I lost my tooth during one of these like very random visits that he has with her. So it's just cosmic timing. She's like, hey, Dad, I lost my tooth. Do you think the tooth fairy will come? And Shel Silverstein was like, no, the tooth fairy's not real. And his daughter has like an absolute meltdown. Fucking break. Dad just shows up, flips fucking tables, ruins childhoods, and pieces the fuck out. Piece of fuck out. And you know what? It's quite a shame that that happens. Because in 1981, when she's 11, while he's gallivanting around the world, Shoshana has an aneurysm and dies. Jesus Christ. At 11. Has no meaningful relationship with her dad that is documented anywhere. Ironically... That same year, 1981, his very most well-received collection of children's poems is published, A Light in the Attic, and it's the first ever children's book to make it to the New York Times bestseller list, and it stays there for two years. For two years. Coincidentally, after she dies, he dedicates it to her. Oh, how convenient. Man, okay, so maybe... Yeah, the thing that makes Shel Silverstein so remarkable then may just be the fact that it is children's poetry written by someone who genuinely loathes children, just like does not fucking care for them. Yeah, and he doesn't really seem to care about like what they care about. It if you've ever read his stuff, it is wild. Yeah, oh oh yes. So A Light in the Attic is not his first collection of children's poems. Where the sidewalk ends, where you know, like a book most of us know as one of his, you know, top two or three, was actually published eight years before, but it did not make a huge splash the way that A Light in the Attic did. And it also did not get banned in libraries, in elementary schools, the way A Light in the Attic did. It was banned? A Light in the Attic was number 51 on the list of top 100 books banned in the 1990s. I did not know this. Let me tell you. Let me give you a list of reasons why A Light in the Attic was banned. Some of them I really enjoy. A lot of parents claimed 
that the poem, How Not to Have to Dry the Dishes, encouraged messiness and disobedience. Because what he said to do was instead of dry the dishes, was to break them. <laughs> and then you would have no dishes to dry. Honest. And parents were like, okay, shall. It's a good system. Yeah, I mean, it's true. It works. It's logical. Yep. It It is disobedient. Mm-hmm. Then there's the poem Little Abigail and the Beautiful po- Pony, which uh, describes the death of a girl after her parents refused to buy her a pony. Oh, nice. There are also themes like the supernatural, which include um, conjuring demons, devils, and ghosts. There are uh, implications of cannibalism and death by suicide. But one school banned the book for my favorite reason, which was a theme of, quote, anti-parent material. (laughs) I like this. I like the sound of this. Yeah. You know what? I'm here for that part of it. Get them uh, enthusiastic about fighting the system from a young age. I was going to say healthy distaste for authority (laughs) from the time they can walk. Right. Don't break the dishes, but like maybe consider negotiating uh, a few things here and there. It's not clear when, but sometime between 1975, when his daughter dies, and 1984, he leaves his houseboat and moves to Key West, Florida, all the way across the country. It's there he meets a train driver, like a tourist train driver. Like like an engineer? No, there's like train, sort of like, it's like a small train that drives around the island. Key West is like a tourist, I would say bus, but it's not quite a bus. It's on a track. A train uh, pilot. Sure technician. He meets this woman. Her name's Sarah Spencer. The two of them have a son named Matthew. By all accounts, at this point in his life, he's 54. He's gotten the partying out of his system. He's working, you know, very successfully as a full-time children's author slash songwriter. He is starting to have some regrets about the fact that he wasn't there for his dead daughter. And he decides, I have this second chance to be a father. He's going to settle down in life. He continues, you know, pushing out best-selling children's books, one of which came out when we were children, Falling Up. I personally remember when this book came out in 1996. I do not. Okay, well, I was only uh, three. Okay. (laughs) No, you weren't, but it seems like you and I had different interests at the Scholastic Book Fair. That's true. That's true. I leaned heavily toward the poetry. Usually a bit more sophisticated than Shel Silverstein, but uh, I remember when my parents brought this home because my sister is a huge Shel Silverstein fan. So sorry, sister, for ruining your childhood with this episode. Falling Up comes out 1996. At this point, he's 66. It's this major deal to have his new book of poems published. Then, 1999, at the age of 68, he has a heart attack and dies suddenly. His son, who is now a kind of like well-known musician and artist, details this time as being like very dark and sad. Both he and his mother descend into alcoholism. They're How both old like, is his kid at the time? Uh, 15. Oh, yikes. Yeah, it's pretty dark. That is fucking dark. They're both like pretty successful now in sobriety warriors, I guess. I don't know what to call it. They're like big in the sobriety world. But his son is a musician and artist himself. I remember Shel Silverstein's death making the news. Do you? No. Okay. Well, we were old enough to have been watching the news and he died and I remember it being on the news. Okay. 1999. That's it. But still, for the 
often misogynistic ways that he treated women, his disregard for the emotional needs of both his first wife and his only daughter, his selfish absenteeism as a father, and for the song about this father enslaving and sexually assaulting his own child, as well as a number of other things, Shel Silverstein is not my hero. No fucking way. <laughs> Would you like for me to rhyme about it? No, no. I. Uh, so, not only is this wild, what? But I, I just found out that Shel Silverstein's music is available on Apple Music and Spotify. As in, you were googling that while I was talking to you? Yes. Yeah. I, I stopped paying <gasps> attention towards the end. That's it's true. What? Um, yeah. It's actually yeah, it's actually available to listen to. Look at this. I will I will buy it. Actually, I'll pay for it and I will post it on our social media so folks can hear it. I feel like actually we can play no more than six seconds of it. Oh I know, fair use. Yeah. Um I am sensitive to DMCA takedowns, but yeah. That's uh this is wild. It is all out there. So I, I feel like this whole new chapter of uh childhood memories been ruined in in unique ways. Honestly, I'm never going to see another Shel Silverstein drawing again without thinking of a bathtub orgy. Right. And I, I feel like if you were to actually go critically read any number of, any number of his children's poems, you would realize that they are, um, in, in terms of, like, tone, not sexually, but, like, sadness-wise, bathtub orgy adjacent. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think this is, you know... It's part of what gives him the longevity, perhaps. And, and again, if you're into bathtub orgies, I really don't want to be the the podcast that is like sex shaming you or kink shaming you. All I want to say is like your favorite children's author is also into bathtub orgies. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, I really the book for uh, young kids. I really want to. I need a copy of this book. So now. you can find it online. You can actually Google Uncle Shelby's ABZ's PDF and you can find the entire thing online. Wow. I just picked a couple of the letters that were very funny to that me just personally. Tickled you. Yeah. Man. Okay. Well, I got to say, uh, not the most horrific personality. Thank goodness. Frankly, Absolutely not. We could, like, Dr. Seuss is a fucking dickwad just in every possible way. I feel like, honestly, horrific after person. last week's episode, just you for context, again, John Kellogg, nightmare, evil, nightmare, God, just like horror, horror show of a man. Yeah. I wanted something quirky and uh, surprising. Yeah. I, I like that. I appreciate the respect for our listeners. And and frankly, if our listeners would like more quirky bathtub borgies in the future, where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep. And please... Like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.